Welcome to Fishman Radio. I'm Bryce Tapp, your host, and today my conversation with Fishman's Executive Director, Brian Sutliff. We'll be discussing the Security Council's two topics, the situation in Yemen and the situation in Colombia. Brian, welcome to Fishman Radio. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Bryce. Thank you for the invitation to join you in our discussion of the topics and committees this year for Fishman 42. And obviously, I just want to send the best wishes personally, as well as on behalf of the organization, to all of our advisors, to delegates, and to our broader communities. I just hope everyone's safe in this time and that we're able to really engage with some of the topics in a way that just helps people really reflect on this and remind them, too, that we're really excited about the possibilities of working with them, both in person and possibly remotely, depending on the circumstances. But first and foremost, we just want everyone to be safe and healthy in this time. Of course. Thank you, Brian, for that message. And everyone in the organization echoes those sentiments to everyone listening and everyone who's been a part of the Fishman family all these years. And so, Brian, if you could just give us a, an update for what does Yemen look like nowadays in 2020? And what do delegates, when they first come to this topic, what do they anticipate to see in their research? Great. Thank you for those questions, Bryce. First, the situation in Yemen has only become more complex, if that was really possible. Yemen has obviously been through a pretty serious civil war for six years now or longer, but it has actually become, as I indicated at the very beginning of this comment, more complex, more violent in a number of ways. Instead of thinking of a civil war right now in terms of two sides fighting each other, you really have to consider there's almost five, seven, nine actors involved directly. You have the Houthi rebels, in some cases, who really control a lot of the northwestern part of the country and largely have control of Sana'a, the capital. You have the Hadi government, which is officially recognized by the United Nations and the international community as the correct or rightful government of Yemen. You have separatists in the south, the Southern Transitional Council, that is really looking to create perhaps its own entity and has indicated some cooperation with Hadi's government, perhaps against the Houthis themselves. But is this really a longer term alliance or could they break away? And of course, you know, historically, Yemen had its own civil war previously of North and South Yemen for quite a few years after the independence. You have then obviously remnants of Al-Qaeda, and the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or Aqab, certainly quite virulent and brutal in a number of cases. You have Saudi Arabia's involvement, largely on behalf of the Hadi government, but perhaps making some outreach to the STC in the south, but potentially also trying to ratchet down some of the tensions with the Houthi rebels, You have, obviously, Iran's involvement largely backing the Houthi rebels, but perhaps having their own play against the Saudis in some ways in general. And then you have a number of other actors that become involved in this. You have the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, involved in some of the discussions and peace negotiations, and Saudi Arabia really escalating some of its own involvement after the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, scale back some of its own involvement. So it's really a complex situation here. And of course, that's leaving out even, say, the interests of the United States, of Russia, 
of the People's Republic of China, of the European Union, and a number of other actors who are very concerned about developments within Yemen and how this will all play out. And that's all then unfolding in the context of COVID-19 and the epidemic or pandemic really afflicting this country. You've already had the environmental crises in Yemen where many authors and analysts have speculated that Yemen might be the first country in the world to run out of water for its people, that it's really at a very desperate point in the accessibility of water for its citizenry. And you put all these items together in the midst of a pandemic, a global economic recession, and the possibility that a pandemic, while we hope would actually lead to some de-escalation tensions, could ratchet them up in a number of cases. And of course, then fighting over who gets the aid, who gets the humanitarian relief, who receives medicines, and whenever there are vaccines or other items available, it, it's a it's a really complex situation. There have been a few hopeful developments in recent months, particularly, again, that the Saudis really seem to want to quiet down some of the problems on their southern border and perhaps even talk to the Houthis more directly in some ways. But will the Hadi government, will the STC be willing to work with the Houthis as well to try to resolve this? Or are we looking at, in some ways, almost a de facto partitioning of the country, even though the UN system almost never wants to recognize that unless it's been a truly negotiated settlement, et cetera. And even then, the UN system is usually very loath to see countries fracture and split unless it's something like the velvet divorce of Chechia and Slovakia back in the mid-1990s. Right. So I hope that addressed a number of your questions. No, it did. It absolutely did. So the, the actors that you talked about, um, obviously those are going to be the headline-grabbing actors, you know, Saudi Arabia's involvement, you know, even the United States' involvement. But if, could you speak to the involvement of the United Nations itself in maybe not necessarily the conflict de-escalation in the country, but to the humanitarian crisis that you alluded to. Um, you know, a number of years ago, there was a cholera epidemic um, in the country. And so I was wondering if you could speak to that, that main actor um, and what their involvement in the country has been recently. Certainly. And I want to also follow up that I don't want the delegates to just throw their hands up in the air hearing about the complexities of this type of situation, because it's really essential that Yemen actually be considered a central issue in it and a real priority for the UN system for so many reasons. The UN has a long involvement in Yemen in trying to provide humanitarian relief, and that can only be done in some sort of element of de-escalation, though. The, the two elements must go together because if the conflict is raging, if you have fighting in multiple parts of the country, the delivery of humanitarian relief will be virtually impossible. And the UN system has to work with a number of actors, whether or not there's the specific legal legitimacy at times, whether or not the UN system finds their arguments or their ideologies to be more in line with the UN Charter's principles, etc. They have to work with them to get the delivery of humanitarian relief supplies especially in the midst of this pandemic. Saudi Arabia obviously has an immediate interest as Yemen is its southern neighbor. 
There are a lot of historic ties between Saudi and Yemeni communities in a number of cases. Obviously, huge numbers of Yemenis, including the bin Laden family, for instance, have moved into Saudi Arabia at times, sought work there, etc. And obviously, some of the political boundaries today don't always match up with the historical, uh, ethnic, and racial boundaries and even religious boundaries that have been observed in previous years. The Iranian influence in Yemen is certainly a more recent development in a number of ways, and most analysts seem to tie it to a larger rivalry with the Saudis overall throughout much of the Muslim world and throughout much of the greater Middle East. But there is an interest there also in in protecting perhaps any Shia communities within Yemen uh, and some of the other larger scale issues there. But these are also perhaps openings for some of these countries to demonstrate goodwill. Give you an instance, I was reading an article a little earlier today about Saudi Arabia and its influence, especially within the Muslim world because of the Hajj and because of a number of other very critical sites for Islam and their connections throughout the Muslim world because of its their centrality to Muslims throughout the world. But because of COVID-19 in particular, and some of the restrictions and cancellation of this year's Hajj and some other elements and rights, et cetera, within Islam itself, actually Saudi Arabia's influence within the Muslim world could be somewhat diminished in a number of cases. Furthermore, with the drop in oil prices, that hurts the Saudis and hurts a number of major oil producers, including also the Iranians. And so they may find this is a moment where they could actually come together in some ways or work with each other more effectively because they need to not suddenly devote so many resources to these conflicts that are not improving the safety, security, or health of their own peoples and potentially creating refugee exoduses, creating further problems. Now, to address another part of your question, specifically about the role of the United Nations system, which I did start with some of that, and I just want to follow up a little more about that. The UN is going to be absolutely essential because, for one thing, none of these actors wants to have to undertake all of this relief on their own. You know, obviously, it doesn't always sound like the most positive of terms, particularly within the UN system, but the concept of burden sharing is essential to a lot of international relief work. And the UN system and its various agencies are central to the way that that burden sharing is carried out. And it's also much cheaper for countries often to work through the UN system than to have to take care of this all on their own. So there are opportunities for countries to work together and also to provide relief in this moment. So I hope that that addressed a number of the questions that you provided. That did, absolutely. Um, And so I wanted to, before we transition to our second Security Council topic, um, I did want to ask you, you know, because all this is, I mean, this is a very complex issue, like you said, and there's so many moving pieces. And then you add, as you said in the beginning, a global pandemic into an already fraught situation. And so for the delegates that approach this, this topic, how do you think that they should go about, I mean, essentially approaching the topic? You know, there might be an in an instinct to, you know, maybe contain the situation of a virus outbreak there with um, COVID-19 or to maybe go for the security aspect first before going to the humanitarian aspect. So how how do you think delegates should approach this topic um, in their deliberations and then coming up with creative solutions um, to the situation? 
Great. Thank you for that question or series of questions, Bryce. You can't really divide them. You don't want to dichotomize in that same way. But I do think that there's not going to be any effective relief or remedy for the effects of COVID-19 in Yemen without addressing a lot of the security concerns. Because you might be able to contain an outbreak in one part of the country, but then it spreads in other parts of the country, and very soon it really spreads throughout the country again. And so it's going to be necessary to actually get the various actors to act- to observe the ceasefires. Secretary General Guterres called for a ceasefire back in March of this year. You had the Riyadh agreement that was signed in November of 2019. You have some other agreements that delegates really want to research and see how they're influencing this. Obviously, the Security Council will start with, in many ways, resolutions 2201 and 2216 from 2015, particularly resolution 2216 from April 14, 2015, really guides a lot of the principles and have been reaffirmed in the Security Council and throughout the UN system. But it's essential that the Security Council be cognizant that the You're looking now at at least three conflicts within the country, if not maybe five, and that it's really necessary to, even if it's transitory and a form of transitional government, achieve some sort of unity within the country to also then address the humanitarian crisis of COVID-19. And within the context of some of these resolutions, to then also address some of the longer-term environmental sustainability crises that Yemen is really confronting. Because these will, if these are not addressed as well in some sort of comprehensive fashion, we should only expect further fighting in Yemen, even after however we potentially resolve COVID-19, assuming that we in fact do, then they could return to fighting over water rights and access. So we really have to consider that you're going to need to achieve an enforceable ceasefire to then address the pandemic, refugee issues, and actually address some of the climate change and climate disruption issues that are central to Yemen's future. Thank you, Brian. I think that's a great place to transition now into um, the Security Council's next topic, which is the situation in Colombia. Um, And so that kind of theme of coming together, you know, laying out of arms um, to address and eventually address longer sustainability needs is very present in this topic. So what does Colombia look like, you know, four years after the Colombian people rejected the peace deal in a referendum? And what have the developments been recently before we get into how COVID-19 has affected um, this topic as well? Thank you for those questions, Bryce. Yes, the Colombian people did ultimately reject in a referendum the proposed peace deal, and then it was actually implemented through the Colombian Congress and the Colombian government in the wake of that rejection by the Colombian people. The vote was close, but it was ultimately a no vote in late 2016, but then the Colombian government determined that it would go forward with this for a variety of reasons. And honestly, Colombia has been in the last couple of years up until really the last, say, five months, been seen as as a potential bright spot in South America, a growing economy, a vibrant country of 50 million people that was really seeing expansion in places like Cartagena, 
Bogota, Medellin, Cali, you know, definitely seeing a lessening of some of the violence in a number of areas. You were seeing a number of the FARC uh, EP rebels demobilizing, demilitarizing, trying to reintegrate into society in some ways, although certainly not with full cooperation. There were always elements of the FARC EP leadership that did not agree to this. You also, of course, had the ELN, the Popular Liberation Army, that had never really acceded to some of the peace deals. And there were always some concerns about whether the government of Ivan Marquez Duque was really going to implement the peace agreement in the same way, because Duque comes from a much harder sort of right wing, closer to Uribe's stance on the issue rather than some of the other Colombian presidents who had, you know, even Juan Manuel Santos had had kind of come back a little bit from this. And of course, Uribe, his predecessor had become very upset with him in many ways. And, and, you know, one of Uribe's brothers had even been implicated and charged with some crimes related to the war, et cetera. And of course, unfortunately, in the context of Colombia, there's been the issue of narco-trafficking and how that's been implemented uh, sometimes strictly for criminal gains, but also sometimes fueling some of the conflict itself in terms of connections between some of the guerrilla groups, some of the auto defense or the right-wing paramilitaries that are often closely tied to the Colombian military hierarchy being involved in this. And of course, the reach of drug money throughout Colombian politics has been enormous for decades, tragically. But even with some of those problems, Colombia was seen certainly as emerging in some cases as perhaps moving ahead, particularly given the 50 plus years of civil war, even before that La Violencia and the Bogotazo of 1948, you know, really a whole century of violence for all accords, especially in rural communities. And that's an element that I think is really essential for the delegates to pay attention to and to the addressing of the concerns of rural communities, which is included in the 2016 peace accords, Colombia was also seen in a much brighter light because of the implosion of Venezuela and obviously the enormous exodus of Venezuelan refugees throughout the region, especially to Colombia. And then you have COVID-19 hit and you're seeing Colombia's economic growth reversed in a number of cases. You're seeing the pandemic exacerbating inequalities. You know, you had even emailed me the link and I'd seen it as well, the recent story in the New York Times about the increasing of inequality in Latin America for the first time in decades, whereas Latin America, thankfully, in recent decades, actually started to reduce some of the inequalities that have for so long been one of the defining characteristics of the region. And now we're seeing a reversing of that. We're seeing, obviously... Colombia has taken a lot of steps to try to lock down the country and really try to address this. But in the last couple of weeks, too, in reading, COVID-19 cases are escalating rapidly in Colombia. Deaths have have been escalating as well recently. And you still have a lot of concerns, particularly a lot of the former FARC-EP and ELN guerrillas are discontent. They are finding a transition to civilian life very difficult. They often claim that they're not being provided benefits or the jobs by the government that they believe that they were promised in some cases. There have been some targeted killings, possibly assassinations of former members of the FARC-EP and ELN in recent years. And you're seeing, unfortunately, a potential reversing of a lot of that progress. 
the peace agreements was peace agreement was always tenuous in some ways within Colombia because it really needed a number of years of successes to really take hold in some cases because it was quite controversial. Even a number of the people who voted in favor of it were not happy with it. They have never been particularly happy with this, the terms of it, but they felt that maybe it was better than continuing the civil war. And now you're seeing a situation where there may be a severe reversal of that. So I hope that addressed a number of the questions that you asked. No, that did. And so I wanted to see if you could um, walk, the, walk the delegates through what the work of the comprehensive system for truth, justice, reparation, and non-repetition um, what what does their work look like? And especially now, four years after that agreement was reached or you know voted upon and implemented, how has their work changed, been successful or, or not been successful? All right. Thank you very much for that question. The delegates are going to need to, first and foremost, obviously, address any continuing violence within Colombia itself. And that needs to be handled and needs to be ended because we really need to have a nonviolent, non-conflictual situation in which to really address some of the underlying issues. One of the biggest concerns is, again, those various territorial developments, programs in the rural areas really need to be implemented. And you need to see benefits going to rural peoples who are so much excluded. I talked about how Colombia has seen a lot of economic growth in recent years, but so much of that was really focused on Bogotá, Medellín, Cartagena, Barranquilla, Cali, Bucaramanga, a few other major cities and, and some urban areas. But the rural areas have not always enjoyed that same kind of economic development and improvement in a number of cases. And that's where the violence was always the worst. Yes, we would hear about Pablo Escobar blowing up an airliner. We would hear about bombings in Bogota and attacks on Supreme Court justices and things along those lines. The overwhelming majority of the killings and the violence was in rural communities, the massacre of villagers, you know, obviously violence committed against women and girls. There were, you know, human rights activists who were killed, indigenous peoples who were targeted, reporters frequently facing violence, threats, and disappearances, etc. Kidnappings. At one point, Colombia was by far the world's you know, kidnapping capital, sadly. And you could see this frequently done for ransoming and for political impact, et cetera. We need to be able to avoid going back to those days, which really weren't all that long ago in a number of instances. We also need to understand that a lot of the former guerrillas and even a number of the people who were part of the so-called auto defense forces, the right-wing paramilitaries, they are more than willing to return to fighting in a number of instances if civilian life is, in their their estimation, far too difficult and they can't obtain any sort of job in a number of instances. Many of them really do feel still marginalized and excluded, and you could see a reignition of the conflict. You're also, of course, going to need a more comprehensive way to address the concerns of the million to million and a half or more Venezuelan refugees within the country. And what are you going to do to provide humanitarian assistance and healthcare, particularly in the light of COVID-19 as it grows massively? Because obviously the Venezuelan refugees, overwhelmingly, they're not going to have access to healthcare in Colombia of any you know effective measures. And you're already seeing the Colombian medical system really heavily burdened already by all of this. So you're going to need to address 
those concerns, again, ensure that there's also reform of security services, including the police forces, so that they really have a much better sense of the human rights of the different communities within the country. And so that we're not seeing a return to that kind of violence. You were also going to have, obviously, elections, not that long from now in a number of cases. And are you going to see really a you know, a hardcore type of movement, particularly on maybe the Colombian right that wants to be much more forceful and aggressive and just wipe out the remaining dissident FARC EP and ELN rebels? Or are you going to see more of a conciliatory approach to try to finally end the violence? And then can you actually have some of the truth and reconciliation commissions and the reparations, et cetera, that have been attempted and implemented to varying degrees in places like South Africa, Guatemala, Rwanda, and elsewhere, because those are also going to require people to be able to come forward and tell their stories without fear of reprisal, et cetera, to be able to present evidence of the crimes that have been committed. And of course, are there politicians, are there military officials, are there former guerrillas and defense fighters who could face prosecution for this? Um, and you've had some countries where they have, in the short term, granted them immunity from prosecution, but future governments sometimes come along and are not as interested in recognizing or holding to those agreements. So that's one of the concerns that would come up. I hope that addressed the question that you asked. No, that did. That didn't. So, you know, for our last question for Colombia, I was wondering if you could speak to the role that alternative development is playing and will play um, in the delegates' deliberations um, for finding solutions to this conflict and, and to this um, peace-building situation. Great. Thank you for that question, Bryce. Alternative development focuses on replacing the income from illegal activities, particularly narcotics cultivation and production and distribution, and then perhaps planting other crops, other types of economic development, but especially on reforms in the agricultural sector. So for instance, with Colombia always sadly associated with cocaine, the coca leaf itself obviously is a naturally occurring plant. It grows throughout the Andean region, but it is not a narcotic until refined, produced, distributed in what we understand to be cocaine and its derivatives. But it's also highly profitable as the narcotic. The, the coca leaves themselves sell for virtually nothing. The, they're just you know naturally occurring wild plants in the Andes. But as the refined cocaine selling for tens of thousands of dollars per pound or kilo, whatever the denomination is being used. Overwhelmingly, that money does not go to the people who actually harvested the coca leaves. It does not go to the communities that much. It really winds up in the hands of you know a small number of people who are exceedingly wealthy and obviously not bound by some of the same morality or legal constraints that most of society functions by. But in some of these rural communities, people find that their other produce doesn't bring in virtually any income. You know, Colombia is the leader in the world maybe of cut flowers. Well, you're not going to become wealthy with cut flowers as a producer. You're not going to become wealthy growing bananas, and that's already controlled by multinational conglomerates anyway. So there's going to be a need to provide perhaps some form of price supports, some sort of 
other income that can assist people so that they could go to legal products and ones that are also environmentally beneficial, but also remunerative enough that they and their families can really survive without having to potentially ally in some way or another with drug production. You also have to understand that a lot of Colombian campesinos, a lot of peasants, etc., may not want to be involved in any way, but the people who really control some of those rural areas may be heavily invested in the drug culture and drug production, and they find it beneficial to either buy off and or coerce people into this. The Colombian rule of law doesn't always extend to the rural communities. It never has in the same way. That's part of the reason they've been so lawless. That's part of the reason they've been so violent and continue to be more violent in many ways today because you don't see a legitimate and consistent police presence there. You don't see that being brought to bear to ensure that the rule of law actually applies equally throughout Colombia. So I hope that that addressed your question. You know, we've seen obviously record amounts of cocaine, of areas of cultivation of cocaine and its production, even with the so-called war on drugs and, and interdiction policies, et cetera, in part because it still remains so profitable. So there has to be a way to provide enough of an income through alternative development that people have an honest way to make a choice or make a way way to make a living that doesn't require involvement in drug production and distribution. Thank you very much for answering that question. And that that is a great view of this topic for the delegates. And I think all of these questions that you've answered and all of the supplement that you've given to the background guides that will be published um, is going to be really helpful. So do you have any closing thoughts or advice for the delegates as they begin their research and as they prepare to enter um, committee in the Security Council? Great. Thank you for that final question, Bryce. Obviously, want to wish all of our delegates and advisors the best. We want to remind them, too, that as delegates to the Security Council, you have greater responsibilities almost maybe than even any other delegates because you have to be so cognizant of situations around the world and ones that can develop. You need to not only focus on Colombia and Yemen, but obviously the Security Council could see other situations that develop or that occur they really need to focus on. And always situating these within the greater regional context. We did talk a little about the impact of Venezuela's refugees in Colombia. We talked some about the regional context for Yemen, but those are really essential to consider. But I think you also talked about it in one of your questions earlier, that the delegates want to come up with practical, but also somewhat creative, even possibly slightly imaginative ways to resolve some of these seemingly intractable conflicts. Because if we don't have elements of creativity, if we don't expand our commitment to what is possible and feasible, we might be doomed to some of the same unfortunate and certainly unsustainable results that we faced before. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for being on Fishman Radio this afternoon. Take care. You too, Bryce. Thank you so much to everyone. And again, it's always a pleasure to be a part of Fishman Radio. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fishman Radio. On our next show, we'll be discussing the African Union Peace and Security Council. 
You can find today's episode and many others on our website, fishman.org, and wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and share today.